Welcome to the Enneagram Journey. My guest today is Todd Dugas. He is the clinical director at Clear Springs Ranch in Aquila, Texas, which is north of Waco, Texas. And I suppose many of the listeners are not familiar with Texas, so that may not matter at all. But Clear Springs Ranch is a recovery community where Todd is the clinical director. More important than that, Todd is a real important person in the life of our family. He's an aide on the Enneagram who has been present to and helped us in times when we needed to change patterns in our lives, and he's helped us to do that so that we can be better collectively, all six of us as family. And today we're going to talk about the Enneagram and recovery and the Enneagram and eightness and the difference in being a male eight and a female eight. And I'm going to start by asking Todd some questions. He's one of my apprentices, which means he's been in class with me four weekends a year for the last two years, and we're about to start year three. Mm -hmm. Lots of wisdom and information on board. So, Todd, would you identify yourself as an introverted eight or an extroverted eight? I think I'm an introverted eight. And what's the difference? I think that's introverted eight. I think I'm more resident. I have a process where I think about what I'm going to say as before I'm saying, because I'm, I think I'm restricted a little bit internally and, and want to be cognizant of my impact on other people. It's not always, I can't always pull it off. <laughs> uh, but, it, but I, I make that attempt and somewhere in there, there's a, a split second delay in me expressing myself, uh, sometimes. Have you always done that or did you make mistakes and start doing that? Uh, I was, I was unfiltered as a kid. Yeah. Uh, and over time, uh, I started being more reserved. I think recovery did have an impact on that, but prior to being in recovery, I noticed that, uh, my mother was an eight. So there's a lot of consequences to being an unfiltered eight mm-hmm. uh, and the impact on other people mm-hmm. and uh, realizing the impact it was having on, on her, especially I've really worked at trying to restrain and it came up a lot in school where I was moved in almost every chair in the classroom. <laughs> and, uh, but I made D's in conduct and A's in, in my grades. Yeah. And uh, that was something I really had to work at. To, to have restraint. Do you think uh, the D's in conduct had anything to do with being bored? Absolutely. I would, uh, in mathematics, I would do all the brain teasers. I would do all, I'd go ahead, chapters ahead of the class. So yeah, I was very bored. My teachers would give me extra work. I'd finish that and I'd help the kids next to me finish their work, which was not appreciated by, by the teachers. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I don't know how much of your relationship with recovery you want to talk about, but I'd like for you to talk about whatever you want to share. And then I want to ask some Enneagram questions about that. Sure. Sure. I was, I was, I was advanced in my addiction. I started drinking at an early age, literally had beer in the baby bottle. Before I was a, a teenager, I was doing coding as a cough syrup. And then later as a teenager, abusing that, uh, drank alcoholically, probably from the age of 13. Uh, on and I was in treatment at 16 in an adult unit uh, because they didn't feel like I was appropriate to mix with the other kids mm-hmm. so they put me with the adults and at 20 I was able to get sober and stay sober. That is so fascinating to me because you're one of the most tender present calm patient people I know and I've known mm-hmm. you for a while now. Do you think that's recovery work do you think that has to do with being introverted as an eight i'm sure it's both but how would you respond to that i think recovery has more of an impact on that than my introverted eightness and it's it's a hard call because uh you know getting sober at going to treatment at 16 had an impact on me sure where i was i was put in a situation where i had therapists and adults and psychiatrists and people talking to me about my behavior Mm-hmm. and how I function. So that had an impact on me. But I think recovery had the biggest impact. 
you know that I teach in some recovery communities and that we're very open about addiction and recovery in our family because of our own struggles in our family. And one of the things that people say to me when they're listening to a Know Your Number workshop and they're trying to figure out who they are is they often say, this is who I was before I stopped drinking or before I stopped using, and this is who I am now. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's not true for you, that you Mm. knew yourself as an eight then if you had had the language and you know yourself as an eight now. Mm -hmm. Yes. What do you think that's about? Not just for you, but across the board in my experience. So how would I, how did I know I was an eight prior to recovery? How did I realize that? Well, not that so much as there are people who kind of try to suggest that they were a different number Mm. after recovery than before. So the way I've handled that is I say to them, you need to think about before you started drinking or using in order to know your number. But for you, that would be impossible. Right. I, I've, I literally, I've always drank until I got sober. I mean, as a five, six-year-old, I was drinking beer at family functions, sipping, which it, it's alcohol abuse at that age. But, you know, I was I was drinking socially until I was 12. That's just unbelievable uh, to me. So I don't, I don't really, you know. You don't know? Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you think, uh, hypothetically, that that's a cop-out? for folks when they say to me, you know, I'm a different number now that I don't drink anymore. Mm. Uh, you know, of course, cause you know my teaching that I try to lead them to, well, you're probably just healthier in your number, but not right. a different number. You're always the same number. Right. I think part of the difficulty for me is being an eight. I've always felt I was the same, pretty much the same all the way through my life. Uh, I remember being stressed. I had features of being a five when I was stressed, but that was momentary. So I didn't have long periods of feeling like I was a different number. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't meet, I've worked with a lot of people that we've tried to work on their number also, mm-hmm. and they don't seem to be confused uh, about prior to being sober. Mm-hmm. And now in the early recovery, being a different number, they seem to, to recognize what number they were prior to coming to treatment or getting sober and the number they recognize themselves as now. After, and it's the same. Yeah, as yeah, the same. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. That's interesting then for me to know that. How do you think the Enneagram helps in recovery? Oh, wow. So many people getting sober have such an um, external impression of themselves based on their behavior. So with the Enneagram, knowing that it's not about the behavior, but about the motivation Mm-hmm. It helps people know that the part of them that still exists all the way through their addiction is true, and all the external things that happen need to define them. Uh, certainly, there were consequences that forced them to get sober, but it, they really appreciate that I'm no longer talking to them about their behavior and what they should have done. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about who they are and who they've always been and reconnecting them to that part of themselves that they've really become disconnected from. Wow. Let me just talk to the listeners a minute about stress and security. So, of course, the Enneagram is not static, which is what differentiates it from all the other systems that I'm aware of. And there's an intuitive move that happens when we're really stressed and another intuitive move that happens when we're feeling secure. And the stress move occurs when you've kind of tumbled down through healthy and average and unhealthy and you're kind of at the bottom of your number. And so as an eight, you intuitively take on some five energy. As a two in stress, I take on eight energy. Joel is here producing today. And as a seven in stress, he takes on one energy. So I'm setting that up to ask you this question. Do you find that when people check in to a treatment Mm -hmm. center where they're going to be for weeks or months maybe, Do they show up behaving like the number they go to in stress or do they generally Uh, show up as the number they are? I think it depends on the number that has an impact on that. Yeah. Um, But many of them do show up in their stress number, but sometimes they don't show up in their stress number because 
I believe, is that they were intervened on. Oh. They weren't feeling stressed. They were just in their number uh-huh. and using, and to them, that wasn't a stressed state. So they don't come in stressed. If I was working with mental health, then I'd probably see more of a stress number uh, entering treatment. Got it. Got it. Is there a phase in treatment when addicts are stressed? Like, is there a um, is there a yeah. time when stress just shows itself and the behavior changes? Normally, in, in a, say, a 30-day program, most programs have longer than 30 days also. The client will, after 10 days, start to uh, emerge, and the stress starts to come along with it. And that first few days to a week, they're kind of in a fog. Uh, so physically, they're stressed, but psychologically, the stress starts to appear or emerge at about a week and a half to, to two weeks. In our process, where you're doing step work, um, mm-hmm. when on step four, which is normally week three to four, they go back into a stress state also because they're starting to re- go backward and through their lives and look at the relationships and look at the impact that they've uh, had problems. Okay, tell everybody what step four is. Uh, step four is where you do a, a moral inventory, searching moral inventory of yourself and how you've been impacted by other people. So most times you start with the closest people in your life, your family members, um, maybe your employer, people you have close relationships with and dissecting that and looking at how you have damaged those relationships and it's an inventory and um, it's a difficult piece of work for people in recovery. Uh, some people don't even touch that work for months or years. Uh, and most most times you go into a treatment center, they try to get you through the step four process in the month. Yeah. So um, I am identified codependent. You know that my sponsor ended up being somebody who was in Las Vegas instead of Dallas, which is a weird story that I don't need to tell. You also know that I believe as a two, I have all of the perfect gifts to be mm-hmm. codependent. So I struggle with why I would be so gifted at something that's not good for my children. And and my experience of step four was that I was so afraid of being honest with myself. Mm-hmm. So yeah. afraid of that. So if I was to look at the 12 steps, I don't know, four and five were the really rough places for me. And I think those steps of figuring out how you've been impacted by other people and then owning your impact on other people and making amends for that, that's a a tricky place, even for me as a two, as relational as I am. Mm-hmm. Yes. What's it like for an eight? To do the fourth step or through yeah. the steps? Fourth. Uh, the fourth the fourth step is not as difficult for the eight at times because we are mad at people. We know that people have done things that upset us. Mm-hmm. Where we struggle with is there, there's a, another part of the fourth step that sometimes people do that and sometimes they don't, which is called the conduct inventory. Mm-hmm. There's a resentment inventory, there's a fear inventory, and then there's a conduct inventory. The conduct inventory is difficult for the eight because then they have to look at how they behaved regardless of other people's behavior. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, so a resentment inventory is easier. The fear inventory is also somewhat difficult for the eights because you're talking about what do you fear? Nothing. And nothing. So it takes some work to get them through what they actually fear beyond a superficial level of snakes and, you know, bad yeah. weather and that sort of thing. Do you think there's a common thing that eights fear beyond superficial level? That getting very close to someone and then uh, being betrayed is definitely a fear. Yeah. Um, being in a close, intimate relationship and not dominating that relationship also. To be actually a, a, a full partner in that relationship mm-hmm. is difficult for an eight. Yeah. Yeah, it is. What do you wish people knew about eights? What I wish people knew is that we don't intentionally behave in ways that that, that scare people. Uh, and we don't know how much power we have because we, we walk into I, I still get mystified by this. 
I can walk through a, um, a building and at times people will turn a corner and I'm there and they back away. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I walk with energy that affects people. I'm thinking I'm just walking because I don't feel my energy, but they feel it. I don't feel my energy until I'm really upset. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it seems like it's neutral to me. Yeah. I've, I've never experienced an eight as neutral. But I would say that maybe the word eights could work with is intensity. Maybe... Mm-hmm because you desire to have things be intense, mm-hmm. yep. maybe you, you don't recognize intensity in other people. You just recognize it, sat, it as satisfying. So maybe yes. you're unaware of intensity in you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there's a dismissiveness in AIDS that when people are intense, but if not at a level that I would recognize as being intense, I almost don't see it. So somebody said, I'm really upset. And I'm like, you don't seem upset because I don't feel it. Yeah. It just yeah. has to be a lot really of energy is, to get your attention. It does. And whenever it's emotional energy without, if it's somebody that's distraught and they don't have a lot of, they're not emoting out a lot of energy when they're distraught. Right. It seems shallow uh, or, or, not authentic in some way and it takes work for Nate to realize that they're actually very upset oh because it's is that because it's not something that would upset you no because the amount of energy that they're emoting I don't feel it oh so got it got it uh what numbers are easiest for you to get along with hmm. <laughs> I want to laugh anyone that wants to agree with me I'll, I'll get along <laughs> with <laughs> Okay, could we have any other criteria? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I like I like twos. Yeah. Um, Do you know why? They are not a threat to me, but it is mystifying to me whenever they have a lot of emotions, because uh, it's. Uh, but uh, we seem to connect well. The oh. um, I like threes. I like the aggressive numbers. Sure. Um, some things I, I struggle with the seven because they don't want to follow the rules. So right. we'll set up the rules and, and they don't, they don't follow. So twos tend to follow more. Mm-hmm. So that I think that's why I get along easily with twos. Threes, we, we partner well together and we achieve things together. What about sixes? I think, I think sixes are easier for me to get along with also, um, especially the ones that are kind of public. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but yeah, they are concerned or afraid and I, I, it's real easy for me to be protective or helpful, um, uh, with them. But yeah, they're easy to get along with also. Ones I tend to have some struggle with. Mm-hmm. Do you know why? Because we, I think it's around areas of where it's one way or that's it. Their and way. And when mm-hmm. I, yeah, their way. And when I don't agree with their way, there's not much common ground that we tend to, to reach. Mm-hmm. Uh, nines, um, I, I get along with nines also, but they're, they merge and they, they cooperate and, and I do like their stubbornness. I like a nine stubbornness, Yeah. uh, but it's subtle. So I don't like it whenever it's subtle when they agree and then they don't intend to do. Yeah. Yeah. They agree. yeah. Uh, but I think I have a, a special affinity for nines cause my son is a nine. And, yeah. Uh, and you have special yeah. affinity for him. Yes, Absolutely. So uh, what issues do you two have as an eight and a nine? Where, where are the connects and where are the disconnects? The, uh, how connect, old is he? I can't remember. 20. He, he, he's 19. 19. Yeah. The connects on a nine is that whenever we're doing activities together, uh-huh. that's where we seem to really be bonded. When we were physically, uh, when he played sports and we were doing, we were throwing the ball back and forth. Yeah. We connected when we played basketball together. We connected through physical activity. Mm-hmm. Um, where we disconnected on physical activity, he didn't want to compete with me to dominate. So when he got to a place where it was going to be combative, uh-huh. he did not. He did not want to engage. So we could play basketball, but we weren't going to play tackle football. Uh, we could do lacrosse, but we couldn't. You know, Got it. Um, we couldn't do full contact sports. 
with each other. Interesting. Um, but we would partner on projects together. If we ha I had a project, uh, he would help me with any project around the house, with yeah. the cars. You know, he we enjoyed that together. I think the very best way to connect with eights is to work side by side to accomplish something. Like like All you're right. talking about. I think it's very mm -hmm. difficult to try to get to know eights by just hanging out with them or just being with them or sitting and talking mm -hmm. about heavy things with them doesn't seem to work very well. Right. Correct. Okay. I, um, <clears throat> I don't know if you can separate this from recovery, and I don't know that you need to, but I mm -hmm. want you to know that that's not necessarily what I'm addressing when I ask this question. Mm -hmm. I find that eights don't have very many regrets. Do you, mm -hmm. and what are they? I don't have a lot of regrets, no. The regrets that I do have would be around my relationship with my son when he was young, and I didn't understand he was a nine. Uh, oh. I thought my son was going to be my son, which would be a little eight. Uh, <laughs> a little you? <laughs> a little eight. He looked like me. Yeah. He, he, he called himself mini-me. Yeah. Uh, but he did not perceive the world or respond to it the way I did. Mm -hmm. So I was a lot for him when he was young. I had a lot of energy coming from me toward him, and he didn't know how to respond. And I remember myself at, at two and three, I responded directly to what was coming at me. Sure. And I realized that he wasn't responding in that way, but I didn't know how he saw the world and he couldn't, he couldn't speak to that. So I regret not knowing the Enneagram back then. That's a fascinating answer, by the way. I don't think anybody has ever talked to me about expecting a child to respond to life like we do. And I, mm -hmm. I bet all parents do that. And well, it was the only thing I had to work it. from. Yeah. Right. You know, none of my children are my number, and none of them respond to life the way I do. That's a very interesting thing to think through. So did you try to get him to be more like you? Like, did you feel like you needed to help him toughen up a little bit? or? Oh, absolutely. As an eight, I wanted a son that would not get uh, pushed around. Yeah. Uh, but I realized that he did. What, what happened as a parent, I started becoming more of a bully to him than a parent. And as an eight, not knowing how not to bully your child, yeah. I think maybe tough for most eights, but it was tough for me. And I had a son. If I had a daughter, maybe I would have approached that differently. Right. Uh, but he was a son. And um, I knew I was being ineffective. And that was a big struggle for me as an eight, yeah. to be an ineffective parent that wasn't uh, allowing my child to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. was a huge struggle for me and not knowing how to figure that out. Uh, so I actually brought him to a psychologist so they could talk to him and then they could parent, they could coach me on how to parent him. Yeah. Interesting. That's very interesting. And that's a big commitment. You know, not, not many kids have parents who would go to that extreme to be able to parent. Well, it would just mm -hmm. be the uh, expectation would be on the child to change and do better. Or to be stronger. Or... I, I think maybe being an eight child, too, with people not understanding me, yeah. helped me realize that they didn't understand me, so maybe I wasn't understanding my child either. So that was part of the, part of the process. Because we have intimate experience with recovery programs like the one where you are clinical director now, how does it affect you when young men and women go through a 90-day program and are okay for a while, but then don't make it. I'm aware that some of the people who were in recovery with our son mm -hmm. haven't been able to stay sober and haven't, some of them, been able to stay alive. Mm -hmm. Do you, as an eight, just know that that's, part of the reality of addiction is it a head thing for you where do you put all that to keep going and to keep believing that what you're doing is is what it can be and the rest is up mm -hmm. to the client mm -hmm. you know what I mean I yeah. I've, I've done enough work with you and uh, with people who uh, have helped me be healthier and I 
I have kind of now at 67 learned that there's some things I just can't be responsible for. I can just do my part and that's all I've got. Mm -hmm. I said a lot and it's just one question, but talk to me about all that. Okay. I think for me, it is a lot of a head thing that I, I process it through my head. I have a strong belief in, in God mm-hmm. and the universal energy. Mm-hmm. And I also want to be first in line when someone calls me and says, I've struggled, but I want help again. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll take those calls any time of the day, any day of the week. Uh, so that's my commitment to God. And that's my prayer. Mm-hmm. And say, so, you know, if, if it's God's plan for someone to not stay sober, mm-hmm. then I think that's a power differential. Well, I defer to God on that one oh, and say, you, you know, God, I trust you on that. Yeah. Um, and there, there are certainly days where I've struggled with it. Uh, knowing someone has, I, I personally have known many people on a personal level who have died yeah. from their addiction, yeah. both in my family and clients that I've worked with and friends of mine that had family members that I've worked yeah. with that have died. So I, there's moments probably once a month where it hits me at an emotional level and a mm-hmm. heart level. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Here's kind of what I want to keep talking about in terms of that. I am aware of how much you know about other numbers because you are one of my apprentices and because you were doing anagram work with me long before the apprentice program. Do you think that there is anything you could say about all, about each of the nine numbers? in terms of what their greatest struggle in recovery is? Hmm. There's some numbers I'm going to struggle with to to identify that. I have not, okay, for the ones that have been in treatment that I've worked with, they struggle with the rules and the imperfection of the rules and that you will design a, a daily schedule or a process that you cannot define everything that's going to happen. So some things are going to be flawed. There's imperfections throughout the process. So in early recovery, I think one struggle with the imperfection that I cannot tell them if you do this, this is going to be the result. Right. And you've talked about this before where in a group process setting, when they, they share, they will probably critique their share. Oh yeah. And yeah. When, when they're in process. So sure. for, uh, residential setting when they group settings every day. Yeah. I think that's a struggle for them also. For twos, I think that their struggle is, is uh, let people have their experience without interfering or helping uh, that process along. Mm-hmm. Um, what people just have sit in their struggle at times. Mm-hmm. For threes, I think their struggle is going to be how they look uh, and not being authentic and constantly changing. So they tend to want to be the the best client mm-hmm. with their therapist. Mm-hmm. And then there's an inconsistency between their behavior around their therapist and their behavior around their peers. Oh. So if that starts to, to become apparent normally about two weeks into their treatment process because clients start to disconnect from them when they start talking because the clients know that they're not being honest right. Right. about what their behavior is and what they say other people should do. Do you think those threes are being honest with themselves or are they being equally dishonest with themselves? I think they're equally dishonest. I think they're delusional uh, in that they don't see it. They believe that they're being sincere with both their peers and the staff. Sure. Straight up. I think that's a sincere delusion. Yeah. Fours, the struggle is most people don't really understand uh, how much struggle they're having. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they think they're being too emotional when I think most times the fours are trying to restrain the amount of emotion they're expressing. Uh, So they get identified as having a personality disorder. Uh, And then other people kind of move away from them and ostracize them. And oftentimes discharge them over uh, their emotional struggles. Fives, they want to gather a lot of information, but uh, it's hard for them to be in that community setting day after day mm-hmm. and to be vulnerable all day long, wake up at six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning and go all the way to 10 o'clock at Man. night. It must be uh, so hard for them. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, they're the clients that whenever they say they can't do any more, uh, other people are thinking they're just not motivated. Right. Sixes, as, you, as you've said before, that sixes normally don't uh, seek help. They don't publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, so they struggle because they can move from being quiet to aggressive and back and forth and challenging uh, when they're just looking for information or answers or somebody to tell them, you know, who do I, who do I um, uh, work with on my, my struggles. Yeah. And, and at treatment center, you have anywhere from, you know, 10 different staff members in a given day yeah. and, and 15 to 20 clients or more. Yeah. And so there's just a lot going on at the same time. Sevens get bored. So, you know, a week after you get there, they're, they're trying to figure out why we're having more fun. Yeah. Why don't we do some, why don't we have outings? Why don't we go somewhere? Why don't we do some fun <laughs> things? And what will happen is they'll start pranking other clients. They'll start pranking staff and they start violating rules. And just for entertainment. Was, just for entertainment purposes without intending to be disrespectful. And then when they're held accountable, especially in a fishbowl setting where they're on a hot seat, mm-hmm. they don't tolerate that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that becomes a, a separate problem uh, also. Uh, eights either don't engage because they don't feel like the person is competent enough or it's not safe enough, or they start to take over the community and start demanding things for themselves and especially for other clients that they think aren't getting their needs met. Mm. So they become a problem client for the program. I myself, when I was in treatment, I got restricted from going outside for uh, three and a half of the four weeks I was in treatment. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. That's so eight. Yeah, I broke I broke a rule uh ten minutes after I was admitted. I broke I broke a major rule in the treatment center and then continued to do that throughout treatment, which diverted me from actually doing a lot of work on core issues because I was superficially behaviorally causing so many um struggles for the staff that we never really got down to core issues. Interesting. Uh, Nines uh, are so agreeable that you don't know what's going on underneath that initial surface. So they they don't engage at times. Um, they watch, observe, see what's happening, mm-hmm. and uh, and have have some difficulty in the group process, a setting like that, when mm-hmm. they're asked mm-hmm. to, to continuously engage and give comment on other people' uh, behavior or struggle. Wow, good job. Well, thank you. That was really good. Okay, uh, you've heard me say this, but I want to make sure anytime we do a podcast that involves discussion about recovery that I say it again. So I'd like to say what I normally say, but I'd like for you to speak to it. Mm-hmm. And you've heard me say it lots of times, and that is that I don't think the Enneagram will help you get sober. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm a big believer in 12 steps, and... I, I, until you've done the work and until you're sober, I don't think mm-hmm. the Enneagram has much to offer. But I do think it has a lot to offer after you get sober, if mm-hmm. you're still working the steps. Would you right. speak to that, please? Sure. I, I think the recovery process is an experiential process. You have to go through the experience of a first step and, and uh, experiencing what it is to be powerless not just on an intellectual basis, but on a deeper level, you have to understand and come to grips with the true nature of the powerlessness over your addiction. That's not something you can read about. You have to experience that. Uh, All the steps are experiential. If you don't do them, they call it a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people, those steps, that it's a a discipline. It's Mm -hmm. something that you do. I think some people can gather information, you know, if you gather information experientially or you gather it intellectually, it does make a a difference, but you have to uh, do something with that because it has to be personalized. You have to personalize the experience Mm -hmm. and the information. And that's one of the struggles I think in recovery today is some people don't do the work themselves. They will fellowship. They will talk to each Mm -hmm. other about things, but it doesn't change them. It doesn't transform them. The transformational process is in the actual doing the work. And that's what they call it. They say, did you do the work? Yeah. And that's one of the terms they use in recovery. Um, Isn't that interesting? Because, you know, I, I use that exact same language, but I started using that language before I ever did anything in recovery. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, spiritual practices. 
and it depends on how much work you've done and how much work you're willing to do on you. Right. Exactly. I agree. Do you um, think that there are numbers that are more prone to addiction and numbers that are less prone to addiction? Yes. Yeah. What are they? I, th I think, and, and there's different addictions, the chemical oh, addiction, yeah. and then there's process addiction. So, so with uh, chemicals, uh, alcohol and drugs, um, I think I see a lot of sevens tend to uh, enjoy mm -hmm. the experience of chemicals. Mm -hmm. uh, but they don't limit it just to chemicals some food, sex, process addiction, also gambling. And uh, the twos that I see in treatment, uh, normally uh, there's normally a mixture of anxiety mm -hmm. with their addiction, mm -hmm. uh, and the chemicals help with the anxiety. The eights tend to be um, in treatment because they've, they've overindulged and they've had a lot of consequences. So there's legal consequences and marital consequences. Yeah. Uh, so they end up in treatment and drinking and using quite a bit. Two, sevens, eights. There's not many fours that I've encountered in treatment programs. And I think partly is uh, they've struggled in residential settings. I think fours would mm -hmm. be more apt to seek out a, a psychologist or a, a private therapist, um, as would probably a one, probably seek out a therapist or but and the ones are you've talked about this the ones being more secretive, are right. uh, having a hidden addiction that not everyone else is aware of, uh, and that being more around alcohol or uh, barbiturates, benzodiazepines. Okay, let's talk about shame. Okay. Uh, let's talk about shame and the enneagram, shame and eights. I'll throw in my two cents about shame and twos. But let's also talk about differentiation across the numbers, if there is mm. any, with shame in addiction. Mm. And you can start anywhere you want to. I've struggled with the, what is shame to an eight? It's a, it, that, I think carry... that's a legitimate struggle. And I think the yeah. reason for that is, in my understanding, you know, guilt is about things that you do. Mm -hmm. Which would be easier for an eight to access than shame, right. which is right. about who you are. Right. Yeah. And and that's where I think eights don't feel a lot of shame, but that's where their antisocial personality traits come out too. Uh, yeah. So, Talk more about that. Well, I would not see myself as an antisocial person, but I see a lot of the things that I've done would, would put me in a category where people would look at that as a closer, give it a closer look as either a, a sociopath or a, uh, antisocial, because I, I can disconnect from other people in such an abrupt way that it's harmful. And then I don't have regret about that until later, whenever I realize that I miss it. But in the moment, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, it's a force, it's a force separation on both sides. I feel compelled to separate mm -hmm. and they, they don't have any opportunity to stay connected. And the more a person tries to stay connected to me while I'm trying to separate, the more forceful I'm going to be about the separation. Do you think that's because you feel vulnerable? Yes. It's vulnerability and feeling trapped. Okay. So, so it's the, the, the feeling of being trapped that elicits more energy from me. It may not be the same for all eights, mm -hmm. but uh, for me, is the the sensation or the feeling that I'm I'm actually both physically and psychologically uh, being trapped mm -hmm. and held against my will. Wow! So I've been uh, teaching for about three or four years now that I think eights are socially awkward in some ways. Does that ring true to you? Hmm. If I don't like the people, I'm social. I'm not. I don't feel awkward because I don't want to be there. Uh, if I, <laughs> so how, I don't. How how often is that true? Um, not very often. I come from a large South Louisiana family, so I'm accustomed to large, large groups of people. But I don't think all eights experience that. So I think it's different for different eights. Yeah. But when I have when I'm doing something against my will, 
Well, I think it's against my will. I've just basically agreed don't to want do to something do it. I, yeah. I don't want to do it. Yeah. So it's not really good. My, my interpretation after a certain period of time is this is against my will. <laughs> so, um, so I don't have a lot of social awkwardness. As a young eight, as a child, I had stage fright because I was not prepared for what was going to happen. And I was put on stage without anyone really explaining what was going to happen. So at four years old, I was put on the stage and the, the curtains open and there were like, it seemed there like thousands of people and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So when I don't know what I'm supposed to do or if I'm unprepared, I think that's where the, the awkwardness comes in for me. Okay. So let's talk about shame mm -hmm. and addiction and the Enneagram. And we, right. we can talk about that in whatever way you want to. Okay. And you can ask um, me questions if you want to, too. You know, I, um, I fall under your care at times. <laughs> uh, let's see. Shame and numbers. I, I, that's, a, that's a difficult question for me because with me not knowing a lot about how to experience shame, uh -huh. it's harder for me to recognize any other numbers. I can see it when it's happening in someone. Um, mm hmm but that's externally. That's fascinating to me. Because eights are always, I don't know if all eights are this way, but I observe externally the struggle of a person or, yeah. or uh, if there's congruency between what they're saying and how they're emoting. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing because I tend to ask people if they're struggling than if you are ashamed of that or if. Oh, so the, so the question would just be, are you having a hard time? Yes. Interesting. So how would, how, what would you see as the differences in the shame of individual, the individual numbers, the anagram numbers? Well, I think, I think ones are, and fours are kind of born into some, I think they arrive on the planet predisposed to mm. not feel like they're good and mm. not feel like they're worthy, all of which is shame. And I think they try to overcome that in two different ways, obviously. One's by trying to be good and, mm -hmm. and correct and right. And fours by kind of in their way insisting that there's a space where doing things their way is just different. It's not shameful. Mm. Uh, I think that's how they push back against the shame that they feel with nobody shaming them. There's just that, you know, everybody wants to belong and there's a mm -hmm. disconnect with for fours lots of times. You know, Joe Stabile is a nine mm -hmm. and he says he has very little and he's 70 and he mm -hmm. says he has very little life experience with shame. And I just have mountains of it. But I think one of the reasons I so readily access shame is because I'm adopted, not because I'm a two. So right. I'm not sure I'm a good person to answer that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Kurt Thompson's book has been really important to me in terms of, and the name of that book for the listeners is The Soul of Shame. And he talks in that book about uh, arriving on the planet, my language, uh, looking for someone who's looking for you. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if people who have been struggling with addiction don't come out of that into sobriety looking for people who are looking for that version of them, the, the new who they are. Mm -hmm. I don't think people do that very well. It was very mm -hmm. difficult for me as a parent of a child who struggled with addiction to not be hypervigilant about is everything okay? Are you drinking? Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Should, should there be alcohol in at any of our mm -hmm. family events? Should, you know, all those things. And I was far more vigilant about that than everybody else, partially because of my tunis, mm -hmm. but I think partially because I am so aware of other people all the time and reading other people's feelings as opposed mm -hmm. to my own. Right. I think it would be very difficult to read shame in a five. I think fives are the hardest number to read on the Enneagram. So I, 
I just don't ever feel like I have a really good read on what's going on inside of a five. Do you? What mm. do you think? Do you? Well, being that that's where I go in stress. Oh yeah. I think it may be a little easier for me to recognize a five's needs. Yeah. 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 But when I'm in, when I'm stressed, I I think that's an area where I don't feel shame. Um, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think I'd probably feel more shame as when I'm doing really healthy, because that's where it seems to emerge. So that's kind of interesting that as more of a when I move towards two energy, right? I would probably be more likely to feel remorseful or shame around things than whenever I'm in stress. I think shame is underrated in every way, in terms of what it causes, what mm-hmm. it costs us the effect it has on our lives. I, I I think it's a very big thing. And I, mm-hmm. I wonder if you would concur or disagree with whether or not more shame than one can bear is sometimes managed with substance abuse. Oh, yeah, yeah. Any way of distracting or avoiding. And if you can anesthetize yourself from all emotions... Uh, Mm -hmm. chemicals is a good way of doing that you know alcohol and drug abuse Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it would be a way effective way of doing that Um, and at core issues that that we normally see here are normally childhood traumas that an individual Mm -hmm. once they stop using and start uh, feeling again which is normally anywhere from one to two weeks for some individuals are even longer with opiate addicts that's whenever the shame comes up and it's so convoluted and mixed mm-hmm. with what they want to be and how they want to present themselves to the world, but struggling with things they thought they should have overcome or moved on from. Yeah, it's a real mixed bag. Tricky. Yeah. Tricky. Yeah. What do you think? Not by number, but other than self-knowledge, mm-hmm. what do you think the Enneagram has to offer? in relationship to recovery. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's a lot more self-knowledge that's available. Whenever we look at spiritual practices that someone can use to transform and become their more authentic self, mm-hmm. I think Enneagram does a much better job than 12-step programs in recognizing and differentiating one type from another. Like we talked earlier about parents believing that their children are going to see the world they see, where sponsors believe that their sponsees are going to see the world the way that they see it. Oh, my gosh, that's brilliant. That's so, brilliant. So whenever you can differentiate the struggle and the, the, recur- the spiritual process of transformation as being distinct for individuals, I think you have a much better opportunity for someone to really connect with their, you know, their core self. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, I have one more question, and well, I have two. Okay. Uh, and the the last one I'm going to ask first, and that is, will you do another podcast with me sometime because we're almost out of time? Absolutely. Okay, great. Okay, uh, here's my last question. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think this one's real important, which is why I saved it till last. Mm-hmm. Does motivation change if you're sober or using... I think awareness of what, you know, whenever I was using addictively, I didn't have motivation because everything was, you know, capitalized by chemicals. So there was very few times where I was really authentic and really present. So I think if you're not present, then that certainly would impact motivation. Mm-hmm. And then whenever it comes out, it comes out in such a distorted way. Whenever I'm looking, when I don't want to be vulnerable, it's one way, it presents one way when I'm sober. I don't want to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. When, I'm a, when I'm drinking and using, it comes out in a very mean and, huh? and perverse and unhealthy way. So, yeah, but, for some people, I, but for some people, when they're drinking, they think, or using, they think they're more charming and more interesting, and right? They think they're, right. they're more positive. Right. Right. Yeah, but I think they're the motiva- that still would impact their motivation because how charming I think I am when I'm using well, compared to when I'm not using. Very. Oh, there you go. Oh, <laughs> so I think that, that still good. would impact the, the motivation because it's what I'm looking for in return. Uh, so I think what I'm perceiving the world as when I'm altered 
my chemicals, it's going to affect my, my motivation. Great. That's great. I wouldn't have thought of any of that. Okay. Um, I, we didn't talk about this before. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's necessary, but is there an, if anybody's listening and they want some help because they're struggling with addiction, do we have anything to offer? Well, there's, yeah, for AA, people can call, there's a, uh, a hotline okay. in every city. Okay. And on the internet, there's a, you, if you do Alcoholics Anonymous uh-huh. nearby, yeah. it'll populate on your phone. It'll populate uh-huh. on your computer. I, I, I didn't do this podcast to, to publicize. I know center, you did. But, I know you did. Um, but I'd be happy to personally help anybody if I had the opportunity. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think we want to give out your cell phone number right, right. just right now. Uh, right. You would do it, which is your two-ness, you know. That's your two-ness. Yes. That's so, right. um, you know that from the bottom of my heart, you're one of my favorite people on the planet. Mm, thank you. And I can't imagine life had I not had the gift and the grace of knowing you. So thanks for the time, and we're going to do it again. We will. Thanks to that. Yeah. I, I cherish our relationship and, and the relationship I have with all your family. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing. we got a good thing going, don't we? We do have a good thing going. Bless you, Todd and God. I hope you'll join me in Edmond, Oklahoma on February 23rd and 24th for a Know Your Number conference. You can get more information at lifeinthetrinityministry.com about registration and about the event. It's a good opportunity for you to bring a friend to a Know Your Number workshop because it's changed your life and you want to offer it to them. And it's a great way for you to come listen for the number you go to in stress and the number you go to in security. Hope I see you there. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lifehouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.